Welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doak. This episode is a three-part podcast. In part one, we discuss the background of some of Renaissance Golf's associates and how the golf course design business works. In parts two and three, we dive into George Thomas, Bel Air Country Club, and much more. These podcasts will be available later this week. As a reminder, if you enjoy these talks on Architecture with Tom, be sure to check out his books. I highly recommend The Confidential Guides and The Little Red Book of Golf Course Architecture. Both are available on Renaissance website, www.renaissancegolf.com. One final announcement, fried egg hats are available on our pro shop. Check them out on the website, friedegg.com. Without further ado, here's the latest edition of The Yoke with Doak. Candid Doke doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of The Yoke with Doke. Tom, how's it going? Hi, Andy. We're at Bel Air Hills of Los Angeles today. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, today we have a, uh, a couple special guests here up in the, uh, the hills of uh, Bel Air overlooking the uh, city of Los Angeles. Who's with us? Uh, I've got my construction crew for the renovation we're doing at Bel Air right now. Eric Iverson, one of my senior associates, who's the lead associate on this job. Brian Schneider, one of my other senior associates who's done some shaping here and is headed to Australia with me in a couple days for the project we're doing down there. Kai Golby, who doesn't work for my company but has built 10 or 12 golf courses with us over the last 20 years. And Blake Conant, who's been doing the same thing for us but for only about five or six years now. Yeah, so... You know, today you're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at how Renaissance works and uh, some of the the names behind some of the, the work and the shaping and the building of the greens, the construction aspect of golf course design. So, Eric, why don't you start us off and give us uh, a little bit about yourself, how you got into golf course construction, and where you grew up golfing. I grew up in uh, just north of Denver, the suburbs of Denver, and started playing golf at a really early age at arguably the worst course in the metro area, Lake Arbor Golf Course. But it was a great environment, a great place to kind of grow up and hang out as a kid and uh, learn a lot about just being around golf, and I knew I loved it. And, you know, at some point you kind of make the realization that, uh, you know, maybe playing golf is not for me, but how else might I get into it? And the timing was really good. And it just kind of found me really. And it was a, a, a great thing. And I thought, 
this is really cool. First project I was working on was where I first saw Tom doing his thing, Riverdale Dunes. And the oldest guy on that project was 26 years old. So my first impression of a golf course architect was that it was unattainable, some sort of image of Desmond Muirhead in a plaid jacket smoking a pipe was what I thought it was all about. And it's like, this is just a bunch of knuckleheads who are a little older than me, you know? So maybe this is something that uh, could into, turn into something someday. So uh, just kind of ended up joining the traveling circus and now I'm hanging out in this house above Bel Air. All right, Brian. I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and we were really lucky in that town. Uh, not because we had a bunch of great golf, but we had a municipal course that when I was a kid, my buddies and I could go there and show up before nine o'clock and we could play all day for three bucks. And that's how we spent our summers. You know, we throw our clubs on our bag, on our back and jump on our bikes and head out early and we'd be on the golf course all day and it was just a great place to learn and, you know, got to meet a bunch of local characters there and, um, the golf wasn't great, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, yeah, I've played since I was little. My grandfather was a good player and he would take me out when I was three or four years old. His brother owned a par three course, um, and a driving range. So I got to spend a bunch of time with my grandpa there when I was just a little kid. Um, then as I got to play more, you know, I, I lived about a 45 minute drive from Lasonia. So my, you know, my family would make that a special trip. Occasionally we go over there and see that. And that to me, that was a place that felt really different than anywhere else I'd played around town. And that's probably where I first noticed that architecture could be a thing that, you know, there could be more deliberate efforts to build something unique and fun and, uh, was just unlike anything I'd seen up to that point. So it had a, an influence on me, just the realization that uh, architecture was a thing. You know, I, I heard the course. Did you grow up playing Lakeside? It's been in the news lately. Lakeshore. Lakeshore. Lakeshore yeah. Municipal. Yeah, it's 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 a shame. Um, a good friend of mine has been the golf pro there for years, and he's looking for a job now because the city's made the decision to sell that land off to a, a pretty prominent local corporation uh, but the golf course will be no more yeah if, uh, if anybody wants to hear more i think golf.com did a whole podcast about it it's a it's an interesting situation but probably pretty sad to see local local and it was an old course too like over what over 100 years old right it was yeah it was there was a lot of conversation in the newspaper and uh, a lot of locals against it but you know economically it makes sense for the town i think so yeah so uh kai how about uh, you? I grew up in Belleville, Illinois, which is just across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. And when I grew up, I probably lived about two blocks from a private golf club. Everybody else was growing up on public, and it was a private club, but it was a very blue-collar, small-town, blue-collar private club. And so I was playing at that course probably from the time I was six years old. We'd ride our bikes over and just hang out at the golf club, basically all summer long and a lot of times during the school year as well. Um, my cousin who lived up the street from me was also a good player. So we basically played golf together all the time. Um, and that was kind of how I got started. Now I did get started cause my dad was kind of okay at golf. 
Um, he played the tour for many years and won the Masters in 1968. So growing up, I did see some pretty good golfers. And my cousin that lived up the street was Jay Haas. So we had you know, some pretty quality golfers. And so the golf course that we grew up on, everyone that grew up on that same course, my dad actually caddied there as a kid. And I didn't know it at the time. I don't think anyone did. But as I grew older and became more interested in architecture, I started kind of looking into the golf course. This is really kind of some cool stuff. And then I played a William Langford course down in Southern Illinois. I was like, wow, that's really similar to what I grew up on. And I kind of started researching it and found out it was a William Langford golf course that we had been playing on and no one had any idea who William Langford was. So that was a little bit how the architecture bug got in my head. I think it was almost through osmosis. You just were playing this course every day and there was a lot of cool shots to play and interesting greens. And so I think it wasn't, some of these guys I think had a little more interest in architecture at early age knowing they wanted to be golf architects. I wasn't really thinking that. I just liked to play and wanted to kind of compete and the architecture thing just kind of got into me at a later stage um, and how that actually occurred. I played golf in college and by the senior year of college, I was just sick of golf. I wasn't as good as the guys on our team and just got tired of playing, went to Boston after college to work in the financial business, did that for a few years and was not really enjoying myself in the offices and kept looking outside. It's like, man, I'd rather be outside and had an opportunity. Actually, my dad got an opportunity in our hometown to do a golf course. And so I quit the financial business and went back to Belleville, Illinois to help him build a golf course. Got into that and it was like, hey, this is kind of fun and just kept kept at it and eventually got in touch with Tom a few years later. And just like Eric, here we are. All right. That's, uh, that's a pretty cool story with the, the family lineage is uh, quite strong. <laughs> I'm the black sheep. <laughs> So, Blake, uh, what about you? Uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, picking golf balls from a driving range called Schmidley's for three twenty-five an hour. But I would get all the free golf balls that I could hit. So I would do that after or before baseball games where the Keystone ball fields were just across the street. So that's sort of how I started playing and honing my swing and then – my stepdad was a member at a club in Omaha called Ironwood, which was formerly Highland Country Club, which was an old Langford that I think had been butchered in the 50s or 60s, but the routing was still intact for the most part. So we played a lot of just like twilight nine hole rounds there um, and got into golf. And then I went to school for a painting degree up in Montana so I graduated in 2009 with an art degree, which led to zero jobs, um, in which case I started asking myself, what do I really want to do? And I liked golf. I was pretty good at math and still wanted to be in some type of creative field. And I really blame my mom because she's an enabler who would just say, yeah, man, go for it. You know, it, Go to art school in Montana or, yeah, go try to get into golf architecture. You can do it. And so that's what I did. I went to a master's landscape program down in Georgia and got in contact with Tom, who then immediately pawned me off on Don Plasic, 
who I communicated with for a year and a half before getting an internship in Dismal River. And then hooked up with these guys and like nobody's fired me yet. So I'm still hanging around. It's always interesting with the people that come on the podcast. So many people, with the exception of Kai, you know, grew up playing public golf. But for this conversation, Tom, I think it would be great if you could walk us through kind of what happens from Renaissance side after you guys win a bid and you get awarded a project. You know, what are kind of the first steps and how do you determine who's going out to that project? Well, the first thing I should say is our process is pretty different from the status quo of the golf business, or at least the status quo of the golf business 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, I learned from Pete Dye, who is a very hands-on construction-based person, so I am too. But a lot of architects doing a renovation rely on golf course contractors to do all the work, and they don't have guys like this that they bring into a job. They just they do plans. They go and inspect it as it's happening from time to time, like I do. But they rely on a contractor to come up with shapers and people to run the equipment and build stuff. And that's the whole key of doing renovation work or especially restoration work. I mean, if you think about it, you know, clubs get all interested in master plans and, you know, this whole big process of how do we, you know, how do we do a master plan and sell it to the membership? You know, if you're restoring Bel Air to George Thomas's design, every single architect's master plan should be the same. It's all about execution and being able to build that and make it look right. And unfortunately, when you do that with a contractor, they're not as engaged as these guys are. So, you know, they're there to do a pretty good job and make money. And that means that, you know, you'll get guys that don't really know anything about George Thomas or what he was about. And it's very hit or miss. And, you know, as an architect, I don't know how I would get a bunch of guys that don't care about George Thomas to build something that looks like George Thomas's work. So I bring golf rats in, <laughs> guys that are really interested in golf and think this is a cool project to work on, and and they see an old picture of the 12th hole at Bel Air with this big mound in front of the green and go, okay, we're, we got to get that to look just like this picture. How are we going to do that? And keep working on it. I mean, Kai was did the most work on that hole, and we – what, like three or four times we, you know, we, we, we thought we had it close and then we get there and we're looking at the picture. It's like, nope, need a lot more fill still. <laughs> Just back to the drawing board, get some more fill in there until this thing really looks right. And that's kind of what it takes to do a restoration and get it right. So I don't, you know, there is another approach, but, but I just, I don't have any idea how that would work for me anyway. It's, um, most people that, listen to this podcast or in the business world. And I think everybody would agree that when you get a third party involved, it, it, it kind of muddies things up and makes things more difficult. That's from my experience. Obviously there are some third parties that do good, good work and stuff, but from the, for the most part, having a club, a contractor and a designer, I think would make communication more difficult and more difficult to align 
everybody on the same mission. Yes, and, and let me not misrepresent either. There is a golf course contractor involved in this. This is like an 8 or $9 million project. It's a huge project, and these four guys can't do all that work. Mm-hmm. So there is a big golf course contractor involved, and there's an irrigation contractor putting in irrigation, and there's there's all kinds of laborers and guys cutting down trees and all kinds of subcontractors working out here. But for us, the key thing is, you know, shaping bunkers, shaping greens, getting those details to look just like they're supposed to look. And that's the part that I don't want to sub out to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So is it is it a team effort with trying to find the old aerials, the old pictures? Or when, when does the team kind of get picked? Um, well, the hard thing, when you sign up, you don't know exactly when the construction is going to happen. So you can't pick the team. Yeah. You know, you can't, I can't ask Kai to, you know, oh, block off some time for me at some point down the road, but I don't know when yet. Uh, if so, it was for Bill Air, I'd say, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but so in the beginning, it's just me and Eric, you know, doing the master plan and trying to get a budget together and figure out how much work this is going to be so we can you know, go through all the political stuff at the club and, and get them to say, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, once we get past that point, then we can start thinking about, okay, here's a realistic construction schedule for when this is going to happen and how long it's going to take and, and how much work have we got to do and how much help do we need to do it? Um, and we start putting the team together and, you know, we've got probably, eight to 12 people that we've worked with in the past on other projects that that we can call up and see if they're interested or you know are you busy over this winter or are you are you working for somebody else or what are you doing you know i've got three of the guys would be on my payroll and generally one of them is going to run a run a job and be the lead associate and depending on how busy we are the other guys might be able to chip in and help a bunch and sometimes they're in three different places and you know, like Brian Slonick, the third guy, is in Australia right now doing a running a big renovation project there. So he can't really help out at all here. So he's running that. Eric's running Bel Air. Brian Schneider, with me, is jumping back and forth in between them, helping out. And then, you know, we'll we'll pull in two or three other people as we need to to get the work done in a timely manner. And kind of the key for me is. You know, a lot of people ask, like, but they ask more about new courses than renovations. Like, well, don't you go back and want to change stuff after you get all done? Because certainly you can't just be perfect and get it all right the first time. And I say, well, no, I don't get it all right. I wouldn't get it all right the first time, except it's not just me. You know, there's four really talented guys who are spending a lot more time out here than I am, you know. They get it right. They get it mostly right before I show up. <laughs> you know, we kind of walk through what, what the goals are, and we've got a bunch of pictures to work with. They get it mostly right before I show up, and then I can deal with the really fine details and the stuff that's more about the playability of the hole instead of, ah, bunker's in the wrong place, or it doesn't look like. They've already got that. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're really working with each other. It's very collaborative. You know, it's more fun on a new project because you're, you know, it's creative and you, you're getting creative input from other guys. But on a renovation, it's, you know, how are you going to make a mistake? Because three other guys are going to point right at it and say, that's not right yet. Mm-hmm. 
So Eric, in terms of you're the day-to-day lead on a project, what's that look like? That's a good question. Excuse me. The main thing is to just spend a little bit more time during your day looking ahead. You know, you've got to just work with the golf course superintendent and the contractor, just kind of forecasting what's coming down the pike to make sure that you're, you're kind of tackling each hole, each portion of the hole, each there's materials coming for greens construction at the end of the week. So you need to have this done by this day and that done by the next day. That type of coordination of our work is, it's really the primary responsibility of, of doing that. And it's really not that, but you know, it's not that much fun relative to the project as a whole, what you're doing, but it's an important part of it. And that's kind of the day-to-day nuts and bolts part. And then the, the larger aspect for me and what's, what's a lot more fun is just the, the collaborative part that Tom mentioned where, you know, you're kind of going around and, and looking as a group, you know, who's going to work on what next kind of leapfrogging around. And, and I think we all have worked together a lot over the years. And, and, uh, you know, one of the things I think everybody appreciates, um, when we're working together is that we, we try pretty hard to not pigeonhole anybody into one role and kind of stuck doing all of the tees or all of the bunkers or just greens, that type of thing. And, and kind of let everybody have a chance to do some of the really fun stuff, like whether it's, you know, putting back the May West mound, that's a pretty cool thing. Tom mentioned it took three, three or more goes to really feel like we had it right. And Kai and Tom had it absolutely right about three weeks ago. And then just random somebody trying to be helpful with a box blade was on top of it, took the top of it down towards the bottom, kind of cleaning it up. So, so it's actually been through its fourth and fifth iteration and, and it has sod on it now. And we, we feel like we got it back right, but it makes the, these types of projects are always set up to, to be done in not quite enough time so that, you know, cause people don't want to give up their golf course and it can be a bit of a high pressure situation that all of Tom's new courses turn out best because, or they, they turn out well because we have a good time building them. So keeping the, keeping the fun part of doing this work as a, as a big part of it is important. And I think that stems directly from everybody having a chance to chime in on everything. It's like no piece of work goes without everybody having a chance, whether solicited or unsolicited to say, that looks like crap. I don't know what you're thinking there. Are you sure that goes all the way over there? I don't think it does. You know, one thing I'll, I'll leave with this is one of the things I've noticed most about, about this project. And I'm everybody is every bit as guilty as anybody is when you're interpreting these old photos. I've been, you know, my, my go-to phrase is everybody sees what they want to see. So you have a sense for how something might've been. And you are looking in these grainy 
old black and white photos that are a little bit fuzzy and you know there's a third dimension missing and and what you feel ought to be there you can kind of make a case for it in the photo and eventually we kind of we kind of hash that out amongst ourselves and then tom comes back and says no you're all for wrong <laughs> see it should be over here but that's just kind of a uh a part of the of this particular process doing a restoration that's just been a lot of fun yeah i should say too i mean when i was when i was in college and going around and seeing all the best golf courses in the world uh, one of the ideas for the way we work came from the the guy who was superintendent of pine valley back in the day said i said well how do you break up who does what and he says well i got like six key guys and they're each responsible for three holes and they're totally responsible for them. And it's like, you've got your little crew to help you, but those are your three holes. So take good care of them. And you, you've got to do that. You've got to give them some ownership of it. And at the same time, you've got to let the other guys have some input too. Cause it's not, it's not like you, you don't get the final say on this, but you know, you get the first crack at it and do a good job. Brian, you've been uh, with Renaissance for a long time. What um, project was the most obscure kind of accommodations? Because you guys are moving places <laughs> for months at a time. That's a great question. Um, Worst or obscure? <laughs> yeah, we, we haven't stayed in many places like this where we're, you know, 600 feet above the golf course looking down to los angeles and uh, just saw a beautiful rainbow on the in the canyon below us as it's raining in los angeles today that's a great question you know we've, we've stayed in some fantastic places um around the world and we've stayed in some places that are you know traveling as much as we do and we all have families significant others that uh that would enjoy the opportunity to travel with us to some of the places we're going. And, you know, Bel Air would be a great place to take your family. New Zealand is a fantastic place to take your family. Mullen, Colorado is a little more challenging. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Holyoke. Holyoke. Or Mullen, Nebraska. Or Deer Lodge, Montana. You know, they offer less to... Uh, for non-work activities. Though I mentioned Deer Lodge, one of my favorite things about staying there, we we stayed in uh, kind of a ranch house that we shared with some of the working ranch staff. And out the back window, in the mornings and the evenings, there were horses penned up right outside. And you'd see the horses running around and doing their thing. And it was fantastic. And the mountains in the background with the snow on top. We've been lucky to work in some really wonderful places um and i appreciate all those experiences sometimes it's a relief when they're over but looking back in retrospect it's uh yeah we've we've had a lot of great uh, great times wherever we worked so uh kai you know you're out there doing the construction and what's your favorite thing to get out there and you wake up that morning, you know you're doing X job. What's the, the job that really gets you going? Honestly, 
there's not one it's like on this job just this week we've i've been involved in starting a green building a green with a bulldozer i've been digging a bunker from scratch i've worked on a bunker that we've already done kind of edit it i also was on a rake eric and i were raking out greens that we have we're getting ready for seed and sod around them and we were raking so and running a trap rake so it's there's all kinds of different jobs you're doing and honestly it, they're all great it's that's probably why i'm still out here doing this because i still think it's great doing all these jobs and that's one of the cool things about working as tom said that you get the opportunity to do a lot of different things to bring the golf course from you know the early stages to the final stages and an interesting element to when tom was talking earlier about how the six um six guys in three holes i've done some work with a lot of other people through the years working with tom is the best part of that um but the other guys i've worked with it's interesting that tom and his company give you more input you know and tom's if you had people rank who's where the architecture rank of guys working today, I think he'd be up near the top. But yet he seems to give us a little more freedom and involvement and not being worried about, oh, that's not my idea and allows us to almost participate more than the guys, some of the other guys do. And I find that very interesting. And it's also makes it more interesting for me to work on the projects. And I think probably for Blake as well and everyone, just having that, you're very engaged and you have ownership of what's happening. So I might've gotten off the track there, but. But yeah. dude, that's why I'm near the top is because I get to borrow all your good ideas <laughs> and all the rest of you. And you know, I get the credit. <laughs> they, they always say hire great people and, and let them do what they do is, you know, the most successful companies, micromanagers are, you know, they, uh, they constrain ideas and for something what you guys do allowing free flow of ideas has got to be so important absolutely and one of the things i mean the, the part of this that i didn't talk about my role is i'll be here for a few days at a time and we'll work on however many holes trying to get them finished and then before i leave eric and i'll walk through what the holes are that he's going to be working on while i'm away and you know and then Eric or Kai or somebody else is going to take a shot at roughing in those greens before I get back. And the one thing that I really had to learn didn't take too long because I, you know, I tried to do it for Pete Dye was not to give them too many instructions about any particular green. You could, you could tell them it was, you wanted to tell them two or three key things, but if I, but if I gave them like seven, inevitably I would tell them two things that kind of conflicted with each other. You know, I tell them to keep the green at this elevation right here, keep the back of the green at this elevation right here, and then don't have too much tilt in it. And then something, but I don't, and then I don't want to see that sprinkler box way back there on another hole. And you couldn't do all those things at the same time. It wouldn't work. So I, you know, I, I had to learn to keep it down to like the two or three things that I thought were really important, let them take a crack at sorting out how everything else would work together and then come back and deal with the sprinkler box if that was a problem. But 
it was better, you know, but they'll see the sprinkler box too and try to work around it. But, you know, if I just gave them too many points to fit in, you couldn't make everything work in between, you know, so you have to give them enough space to operate it. Tom, one thing I just throw in what you're saying is, and Andy's listeners and what he was talking about before, but everybody here being a golfer, from my experience with you also, you will sometimes just explain how the golf shot coming in, you don't even have to say anything about yeah, the dirt. Exactly. You just say, this is, I want this shot to receive from here, but I don't want you to be able to recover from over there. And if you don't understand golf, like you were talking about the contractors, a lot of guys don't even play golf. No, you can't have that conversation with them. No. I, you know, one of the best instructions, one of the first projects I worked on with Eric, I, I just, when we were doing Riverfront, I remember saying on the fifth hole, you know, just the only thing I want you to do on this green is, you know, go over, you know, there's, when you stake out a new golf course, you put a post where the landing area is, you know, presumably where everybody's going to drive it off the tee, but obviously not everybody drives it right in the middle of the fairway, 280 yards or wherever the post is. So they're all over the place. And, but there's always the post there. And, and a lot of architects go stand at the post and look at the hole, like everybody's going to be there. And I know from, you know, cause I, I'm a golfer, you don't drive it to where the post is. You're all over the hole. So, you know, I told Eric on at riverfront, so, you know, okay, walk 20 yards right of the post and look at the green from there and then walk 20 yards left of the post and look at the green from there and try to make it look as different as you possibly can. And, and after I, after I said, it, I was like, that's a pretty good general rule, you know, cause if you can make the shot from the right, look really different than the shot from the left. Now you've got strategy. Yeah. Angles and options. That's my, uh, my thing. Um, <laughs> a lot of people say actually, but, uh, so Blake, tell me about the, the first time that you got on a dozer and like built a green or t- attempted to. Like, what, what's that like learning how to do that stuff? Uh, rattling, because you inevitably create these waves when you're first getting on a dozer. The blade will dig down, and then you try to overcompensate by lifting up. And so I think actually the first time I was on a dozer was Dismal River doing this huge push on two fairway, and Brian Schneider would have to spend the first 20 minutes of his morning every morning, cleaning up our mess um, that we had made the night before. Um, But as you sort of get out of that, which is for some people, it's 20 hours on a dozer seat. It could be 200 hours on a dozer seat. And you're lucky to get that time if you get it. Um, To Blake's credit, we had, I think, eight interns on the Dismal River Project. And that, that project on the second hole was probably a six or seven day project, all told. And I'd work on it during the day, among other things I was doing. And in the evening, when it was time to shut the dozers off and it was getting dark and we all went in to eat, there was the opportunity for somebody to jump in the bulldozer. And those eight guys all had a chance. And Blake made himself a bill every night to jump in that machine and get that experience because it's hard to do. It's hard to do. But he took advantage of that. And he was a really quick study. You know, he, he took to it quickly and he was eager to take advantage of that opportunity. And that's a big reason why he's sitting here right now. Has there ever been somebody that made like a horrible mistake that actually ended up being like a brilliant mistake? Have you seen the the second fairway at Dismore River? (laughs) (laughs) 
We'll have to put a picture in that. <laughs> yeah, it used to be dead flat. <laughs> it happens every day. You know, I, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but, you know, part of being on site every day is, you know, number one, capitalizing on opportunities when they present themselves, but also just being in a machine and messing around until you stumble on something that works and looks cool. So they're, they're kind of intentional mistakes, but you you don't always have in your head the perfect picture of what you're intending to build from the get go. You change, you change your mind as you're going. I, the the best I, the best example I know of, of of a mistake. I, when I, I was at Casa de Campo once and Mr. Dye was giving me a tour of teeth of the dog and there's a green there I'm trying to remember what hole it is. It's the only part three that's not on the C. I think it's the 13th. And it's a really odd, it's an odd looking green. It's like sits down, sits down a little bit unnaturally. And then there's like a big, I think when they built it, it was like a donut. Like there was sand all around it. And then just a little green sitting up in the middle of the donut. And, and Pete told me that he had like, given these guys some instructions to build something completely different than that and gone away for like three months. And they, they had like almost no heavy equipment to build anything there in 1970. So it was all hand labor and he got back and it was just totally not what he decided, what he was wanting at all. And he was like, this is like three months of hand labor. I'm just going to have to work with it. (laughs) So he worked with it, and you know, it's a lot of people think it's a pretty cool hole, but it was like nothing at all, like what he had in mind. I make mistakes sometimes, and they turn out like working well. Like Eric, so you've got a somewhat obscure job. Some people would say it's an obscure job, and when you talk to somebody, when you talk to like Joe, regular member at a country club, what do you wish they understood? better about what you do hmm that's a tough one really um i've got i tend to be pretty obscure about trying to describe it in the first place so (laughs) i think if uh you know people you can tell right away if someone has a sense of what it is just based on the follow-up question if they're at all even concerned about architecture or how things get built. You know, like a lot of the people that listen to your podcast at least are interested and kind of have an idea. And usually you can tell by either the question or the reaction to the answer, whether or not they have any idea. And I don't really, you know, if, if, if there's nothing there, I don't, I don't really try to, uh, elaborate any, um, um i i think the biggest thing is is that the assumption is is that everything is drawn and that if you're in any part like i usually describe it as design and build golf courses and they get the design part but they what do you mean by the build part and it's like well we 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 go yeah, out and shape they don't they don't get that it's all one process. They think of it as two separate things. Yeah. You know, there's the there's the guy that's designing it, and they think that's me. 
And there's the guys that are building it, and they think that's these guys. They don't see how much input the you know you're still designing it while you're building it. I mean, you, you you're you're sculpting. You don't you know they think you've got it all figured out exactly in 3D in your mind in advance, and there's no way that anybody does that that well that way. You know you've got and. You know, when you're asking me for an answer right now of how exactly how that's going to be, you know, I can I can try to describe what I want it to be like, but but in the end, somebody's going to have to make it, and they're going to spend hours and hours and hours making it, and sort through all this detail, and usually it gets better from that process, mm-hmm. but you know, the members just think it well, it's all figured out, or in this case, George Thomas figured it all out, and, and yeah, he did, but he still had to go through that process, and sometimes we, we have to go through that process again to get back to there. Mm-hmm. So, Kai, yesterday I you know, showed up, and I, you were digging a bunker and shaping a bunker, and you came across some like electrical wire. What's the most obscure thing that you have come across while digging up? I can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> That was on one of my projects, and no, he can't. <laughs> Can you give us a hint? No. <laughs> it was a building of some sort. We did uh, when I worked in when I worked for the dyes. The irrigation guys trenched through human bones, and they had to, sh- you know, they they. <laughs> They had to like bring the police out to the site to investigate it as a murder investigation until they figured it was at least a hundred years old, and so they it wasn't an active murder investigation, and they could let it go, but it was going to shut the whole job down <laughs> at the time, so it was a pretty big deal. It's crazy. It's, yeah, uh, it's not as interesting as skeletons in the golf course, but when you came out yesterday, the wires that I actually hit were irrigation wires, old irrigation wires. That's why that tape was there. But just the guys that are listening might find it interesting because you were standing there. I was digging where we kind of knew the bunker was from the old aerial. And so as I get down three, four feet, I can actually find the old bunker sand from the George Thomas golf course is there. And I'm actually able to just start the dirt kind of just pulls right off of it. It kind of in a layer. So that sand is all under there. So I'm actually just chasing the sand from the old bunker, knowing the shape of it basically by the aerial and can find the floor of that old bunker sitting right buried under four feet of dirt. So it's kind of an interesting process in that regard. Very interesting. Um, we'll get more into the Bel Air things in, in, in part two of this podcast. But, um, Blake, we, let's, I got some random questions that I think would be good to ask in, in this segment from uh, listeners. Kip Johnson wants to know, what is the best way to evangelize to other golfers or clients about golf course architecture? That, I think that's a huge question for everybody, um, for, for every golf course, particularly that's going through a restoration, you know, to use Bel Air as an example, it's, it's like the less cart traffic you can have, the better just because of the nature of the property. But to do that, you need to have a, paradigm shift in the way that this and that a culture has thought for you know 20 years or 50 years or whatever it is so educating people on 
let's use that as an example, is is a huge component. And I don't know, I, I imagine Tom still is figuring that out to this day of how to educate people what the best way is because different, you know, people in California may react differently to being educated than somebody in um, a different part of the country. So I would have said that the, you know, these projects are kind of contagious a little bit. Like, I mean, one of the reasons we're redoing Bel Air is because they did a great renovation of LA Country Club a couple of years ago. And all the members of Bel Air now look at that and go, why can't we do that? And, you know, we worked in a lot of cities that that's, that's the case. And once, once certain clubs start going in the right direction, fixing things, and everybody else sees it, everybody, oh, let's do that too. Let's, let's bring somebody in to look at our course. And then I won't mention it, but there's one club I'm consulting with right now that's in a small town, and they're isolated from that entirely. They're like two hours away from anything else. And, and it's been the hardest client that I've dealt with in years because they're so scared of shutting down the golf course for any length of time. All the members will quit and they can't see the, you know, they can't visualize what the transformation will be because they haven't seen another club do it and how much better it is and how much more excited the membership is to get done. So that's the the main thing is go see something else that somebody else has done. That's what's going to get people excited about it more than just talking about the history of it. So you talk about, you know, a city undergoing one club and then you know it becomes a keeping up with the Joneses type thing. Uh, and this question's for anybody here. What city would you like to see undergo like a golf course transformation where it's a big restoration trend or a big renovation trend? Selfishly Denver because I live there. <laughs> but uh yeah, I think there's a there's some places there with a lot of potential that you know, not not world beater golf courses necessarily, but just just kind of getting the fundamentals right would help a lot of places immensely. And I think that goes for you know, most golf courses that that even have a modest amount of topographical interest and a good routing and some, a decent set of greens, you know, it, it's, it's really, it, it, it can be pretty minimal, um, you know, just getting rid of some trees and getting some mowing right is a big part of it. Really. I mean, Bel Air was interesting just how much better it looked regardless of how it had been remodeled over the years, just, getting all the trees that had been added off of it made a world of difference. I, uh, something I liked that I saw today was the uh, tree behind the fourth tee that got turned into a bench. <laughs> Good use of a tree. Um, so we got this question from um, Chris, Christopher McCann, and it, it's for Tom, but Brian, I think you've worked with Tom for a long time. How do you think he's evolved as an architect over the years? I'm going to think about that. I don't 
I would, I'm not sure I'd use the word evolved. Um, one of the things I admire about Tom and the way he works is that in regards to our new projects, he's always trying to do something different on the next one than did in the last one. And it's not necessarily an active stylistic goal necessarily. It's just a constant willingness to ensure that the finished product reflects the unique nature of that particular site. And, you know, I think a lot of architects have a signature look or a signature style, you know, the, the bunkering they do on this course will look a lot like what they've done in the past sort of thing. And I think we as a company try really hard to, to do something different than we've done before on each of our projects and finding something about every site that, uh, you know, that we can work from as a starting point stylistically. And I think Tom's great at that. And to me, he's the best in the business at that. You know, something that struck me as we're talking about the way we've worked, you know, Tom's got, when you read about Tom, the word ego comes up a lot. Tom's definitely confident. Tom's very knowledgeable. Tom's great at what he does, but I hope, you know, this discussion about how we work reflects his willingness to let others participate in the entire process. And I don't think there's anyone in the business who's more respectful and shows greater public appreciation than the people that help him do what he does. And there are a lot of people that would do that for him willingly, but he goes out of his way to, to give credit to the people that help him do his job. And, you know, it drives me nuts to see that word ego attached to him so often by people that don't, you know, that haven't worked for him for 15 or 20 years like we have. We got another one here from actually one of your guys' colleagues, Clyde Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to cut to this question. This <laughs> <laughs> we'll give this one to you, Tom, because we. So how do you think your career opportunities, style, approach would have differed if you'd started out under a different architect than Pete Dye? Oh, I can't even imagine. I mean, you know, when I, when I, got, when I started in college seriously trying to pursue this, and I, I didn't know anybody in the golf business, so I just wrote letters to people in the golf business. Give me advice. What should I do? Who should I work for? This is, so this is 1980. Every single person in the golf business said, work for Pete Dye. I mean, there wasn't any, oh, you should work for Trent Jones. Oh, you should work for Mike Hurdson. Oh, you should work for whoever. Every single person, you got to go work for this guy. Partly because he was so hands-on and partly because he was so passionate about what he did. Um, but so I, I can't even, you know, like after I got back from my scholarship to spend a year in the UK, I, Mr. Jones, Trent Jones Sr., who'd gone to Cornell 30, 60, 50 years before I did, got into, he'd been up at Cornell and they told him they had this student overseas and he was like, well, I'll have him get in touch with me when he gets back. And he would have offered me a job to go work in his office in Europe. And fortunately, I'd already worked for Mr. Dye for one summer of construction. 
and I was hooked on the idea that it was about construction and it wasn't about drawing plans. So, you know, so I, so that didn't appeal to me at all. And if I hadn't had that one summer of construction experience, it might've been different, even though, you know, just like these guys have talked about, one of the most appealing things to me about this business and about golf in general is spending your time outdoors, you know, sitting in an office, drawing plans of this stuff does not interest me at all. I want to be out there doing it. I think it, the work benefits from that. So, you know, if I had worked for anybody else at the time, I mean, at the time, Pete Dye was the only guy who was out there building stuff himself and hiring young guys that were interested in golf to help him build stuff. Now there's a lot because we all learned from Pete or, you know, Bill Core and I learned from Pete, and then a lot of other guys have learned from us. So there's a lot of people taking this approach now. But it was really rare then. Um, I can't imagine doing it any other way. So as a follow-up to you guys, um, what would be your advice for somebody that might be looking to get started in the industry who's crazy enough to live as a nomad? I would say you better be really passionate about it because it's not going to be about the money for a long time. And you just better really enjoy being out out in the field building a golf course because, you know, it's not going to be, as you're a young guy, it's not going to be real glamorous. But you can also hang out with some fun people maybe on a site. But it's not going to be, oh, I'm going to be out, you know, putting stakes in the ground and laying out golf holes. You're going to be have to do hard work. Having a, a good attitude and a willingness to appreciate that you may not conform to a nine to five schedule Monday through Friday. Um, if you realize that about yourself and that you're just, you can work for 20 days straight and then you can take two months off and you're happy with that, but you come to work with a good attitude every day and are happy to be there. That's a hell of a start. I think another thing that I learned really quickly just about myself was that in anybody else who, you know, has had any staying power once they join the circus is you have to love golf courses. I always knew I loved golf, but you have to really love golf courses because you don't play a lot of golf. You know, we play some dirt golf from time to time and, day like today it was a, it was a little wet otherwise we might have snuck over someplace great in the city and and played some and uh we're all getting a little long in the tooth now so we're playing a little bit more and more as we make more time to get away but you really just have to love golf courses and uh, whether they have grass on them or not because by the time they have grass on them you're off to the next pile of dirt so you know you've just got to appreciate being out on golf holes and being a part of making making golf holes come to life and not hung up too much on getting to play a lot. Yeah, to that point, we didn't spend our day off today playing golf at one of the great courses in town. We spent the day walking around in the rain at LACC to see how the water moves through the Arroyos. So since you guys all love golf courses and we're in L.A., a golf course I love, I I lived next to it for about a year 
was uh, Rancho Park. And it's like, of course, I always talk about like, man, if, if I could just go play, I want this to be a scruffy course that a lot of people wouldn't appreciate. But like, I love that place. I go there and you hit a good drive and you get this little hanging lie and you got to hit a wedge into, you know, and, and the topography and everything there is really a neat place. But it might have, it's a little worse for the wear. Where is your guys' Rancho Park? We don't get to hang out at one place for that long. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sad. You know, I somebody asked me a question a couple of years ago. Well, how many courses have you played more than ten times? You know, because it was about rankings and like, like how can you rank a golf course when you've only played it once? And I'm like, well, how could how could I have seen? 1500 golf courses if i had to go back to them all 10 times <laughs> you'd be stuck on a much lower number and you wouldn't you wouldn't see nearly as much variety and then they were like well how many courses do you get to play 10 times i'm like well okay the sterling farms the municipal course in stanford where i grew up and cornell university course and crystal downs where i'm a member now and probably half of my own courses I've played more than 10 times and probably close to half of them I still have not played 10 times yet. And then after that, it was like all the best, you know, St. Andrews and Pine Valley and Marion because I keep national golf links because I, you know, I've gone back to those places over and over again until I wear out my welcome and they won't let me come back anymore. <laughs> but, you know, no... You know, not too many places like Rancho Park. I mean, because I'm always moving. And, I, you know, we never get to hang out in the same place for too long. That's, going back to your earlier question, that's the toughest part of the business. And and not, you know, some of my best work, some of, the, some of these guys' best work is in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, we're getting on a plane Friday to go 14 hours to Australia. And... I've had nothing but good, great times in Australia and New Zealand building four spectacular projects. But it sucks that they're so far away. And and even when I do, we'll be in Sydney for a week. I'm not going to get back to Barnboogle and play. I'm not going to, you know, I am going to stop through Terraidi for a day because I know it's the only time this year I'm going to get to. You know, that's why... I don't mind at all being kind of a homebody and trying to grab any little project close to home, even if it's not going to be spectacular. Because, hey, I might at least get to hang out there a little bit and enjoy it after. So maybe we shift this question and say, you know, which of the projects that you've worked on would you like to just kind of sit and play over and over again for a month? Good question. One of the courses this we did. Is, this is Eric, by the way. Yeah, one of the courses we did in Australia just completely fit my psyche, and just everything about it felt great to me. And that's St Andrews Beach, and you know it, 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 it's had a a tough road. I, um, I understand it's you know pretty 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 reasonable, Nick. Right now, it's you know, doing okay. And they, you know, people seem to be enjoying the golf course, but you know, it's not 
quite on the sea, but it's it's close in the cups region, and the the ground is just something about the scale of the movement there and the heat and the flies. I love it all, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I just really felt just so like every day I was there working on it. I was just kind of there in support. Brian Salonic was the was the the guy that really spent the time there and did a lot uh, or you know ran the job and Brian and I helped with it but every day I was there I loved it and then we went back after we had a Renaissance Cup and played a, uh, a couple rounds there and then I even went on a impromptu family vacation and drugged my in-laws down there for a game in the heat and the flies and I was the only one who appreciated the flies but but they really liked the golf course too uh it's just that's just one play and yeah it's true I hate bugs so how ironic is that but uh but yeah that's that's one that of his courses that don't get back to enough that's that's the first one that pops into my mind I may be stealing this one from Brian Schneider, but uh, Hollywood Golf Club, where Brian ran the job, which is an old Walter Travis course that Brian and Tom restored and I was lucky enough to work on. And it's just, it's on a flat piece of ground and it's one of the quirkiest places you'll ever see with, I think it originally had 240 bunkers ranging from 10 square feet to 12,000 square feet and some of the coolest greens in the med area and it's just yeah walk it every day play 36 holes a day it'd be fantastic really almost every course we've worked on i'd love to have a chance to go back and hang out for a month but uh where tom's going to terra Edie would be a marvelous place to go hang out for probably the rest of your life and uh (laughs) and uh but if I honestly could pick one, I'd probably go to the Renaissance Club over in Scotland. And nothing against Tom, but probably not so I could play his course, so I could hang out and play North Berwick every day. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> if for me, it's probably the places I haven't been back to in a long time. And Rock Creek in Montana, uh, Stone Eagle out in Palm Desert. You know, they are places I loved when I saw them, but it's been too long since I've been able to get back. Uh, and there are a lot of those, like Tom said, you know, they're, we've done work all over the world now and it's just, it's tough to, to cover all those bases regularly. And it's great to have an excuse to head back to Melbourne for new work and get to swing by St. Andrews beach or run down to Bard Moogle. Uh, but it often takes a work excuse to get back to some of those more remote places. Tom. Yeah, I think my answer is kind of like Brian. It's like, well, where haven't you got to be very much? You know, it's been been 20 years since I went back to Riverfront and almost that long since I went back to Quail Crossing. I sent Tom Mead down there recently to see the greens shrunk in by 20 feet in places and some of them dirt. It's The city just bought that from a from a operator to turn it into a municipal golf course, but I don't think they realized how much work they're going to have to do to get it back in shape. You know, um, interesting little factoid about that. The operator, I, you know, one of my readers told me was the uh, owner of Warrior Golf, famed infomercials on the Golf Channel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
they didn't do a good job taking care of my golf course from all reports. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's the ones that I haven't had much chance to hang around yet. San Emilion in France. We'll go back for the Renaissance Cup this summer, but I, I played in the grand opening. That's the last time I've seen it. Um, St. Andrew's Beach, as, as Eric mentioned, is, is, that's always been on my list. You know, it took quite a while to get that project together. I looked at the land for a different client like probably five years before we actually wound up getting to build it. And then, and then the guys that we built it for went bankrupt almost right right out of the box as soon as it was done and it was just shut down for a while and and you know they were just barely maintaining it so the value wouldn't go away um and eventually uh uh the guys that were maintaining the golf course said you know we could operate this and make money on it and and so they got it back in and it's not quite so uncelebrated now i just got my golf digest like day before yesterday it made their list of the top hundred courses outside the outside the United States. Really? Yeah. The funny so. thing about that course, my first time in Tom's office, that's the topographic map that he uses as a routing exercise, or at least he yep. used with me. Yeah. See how many holes you can fit in this section of land, and I think I fit three. And then Tom's. No, wrong. You can fit seven <laughs> holes in there. And he, he puts the St. Andrews Beach. <laughs> uh, well, let me let me let me tell you why why I use that. Um, you know, it's this it's basically most of the front nine of the golf course now is this is in this one little tight stretch of ground. And well, I guess the third three, four, five is not part of it, but all the rest of the front nine is is this one little stretch of ground. And I only use that as an exercise because, you know, it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, if you, you know, are you just going to look for one great hole, you know, the best possible hole, regardless of how anything else, whether that destroys your chance of doing anything else, or are you going to look for how things fit together? Because, you know, I was told that one of the Australian architects had, had, had done a routing for that same piece of ground. And where those sort seven, eight, nine, all zigzag back and forth through that topography, he just had one par five hole going down the valley. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you know, this is a good example of how different people would just look at this entirely differently. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.